this is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 4 verses 21 to 30. It's the reading for the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany in the year C cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be one of the biblical texts for January 30th, 2022. This story in Luke's gospel is the the follow-up to last week's reading from the gospel of Luke about Jesus's preaching in Nazareth. Last week's reading had to do with what Jesus said in Nazareth when he went to the synagogue on that particular Sabbath. Today's text in the lectionary from Luke 4, beginning at verse 21, focuses on the response of the Nazarenes and Jesus to the preaching that takes place in the synagogue on that Sabbath. Now, Luke places this story somewhat out of order. Jesus has already been to a city called Capernaum that many of the Nazarenes would have known about and also known about Jesus' preaching there. But yet in Luke's gospel, Luke places this story before Jesus' preaching in Capernaum. And so Luke purposefully places this story out of order, and the reasoning for that will become clear by the time we get to the end of today's text. Jesus attends a Sabbath service, as he usually did, and Luke takes great pains to help us understand that Jesus is a part of his Jewish context. Jesus goes to Sabbath. Jesus goes to the synagogue. Jesus uh, goes to the temple at the appropriate times. Jesus does all the things that a typical Jewish person of his day would do. And on this particular day, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet uh, as a part of the synagogue service. This is a story filled with a little bit of privilege and suspicion on the part of the Nazarenes. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but the only reason he was born in Bethlehem was because there was a census taking place that required Joseph to return to his ancestral city, which was Bethlehem. But make no mistake, Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth, and this is the place where they raise their son, Jesus. Nazareth is in a place in the north, uh, roughly west from Capernaum, moving toward the Mediterranean Sea. So if you were to imagine the Sea of Galilee, and on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in its northwest quadrant would be Capernaum, And then if you traveled west from there over a series kind of of hills and valleys, you would eventually arrive at Nazareth. This story in Luke's gospel, beginning at verse 21, provides us the very first words of Jesus. This is an important phrase in Luke's gospel, uh, where Jesus says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when people hear Jesus in Nazareth, initially it says that they liked him that they like the words that he says. There's a sense of wonder and gracefulness about what Jesus has spoken there in the synagogue in Nazareth. But this wonder starts to give way to their own level of disconnect with Jesus. They begin asking questions like, is this not Joseph's son? They react not to him so much as Joseph's son, but their disbelief that this person that they've known as Joseph's son could be the same person who's speaking these words to them on that particular day in the synagogue. You see, the Nazarenes in some ways see themselves as having a sense of privilege and entitlement. After all, it is Jesus' hometown. They, They simply can't believe that this Jesus, who's 
grown up in the house of Joseph, is the same person bringing this word to them. So there's a, a disconnect for them in this way. But compounding that problem is that according to Jesus, well, they've heard what he's done in Capernaum and they want him to do the same thing or even greater things in Nazareth, his hometown. They believe that somehow because they're his hometown crowd, they're more deserving of something or entitled to something from Jesus that the people in Capernaum wasn't. They believe that Jesus somehow owes them something. So they they actually want a degree of disparity or inequity. Uh, and in some ways, one might say it's a practice of a form of kind of cronyism in which the, the Nazarenes want Jesus to do something even more important for them than what Jesus had done in Capernaum. And here's the key passageway for us, that Jesus is not in a transaction of privilege with us. In some way, the Nazarenes expect that they're more deserving of something from Jesus. Theirs is an argument of justified inequality, that Jesus, you owe us something as your, your hometown crowd. And this notion of having a right to something from Jesus or that Jesus is somehow indebted to them is an expression of privilege. And they're, they're all conveyances on the part of the Nazarenes of wanting a transaction with Jesus, not a relationship with him. I mean, how often do we or others within our world engage with God as if God owes us something? Do we have that same sense of privilege about how we engage with God or how we engage with other people? Do we want inequitable treatment simply because of who we are. No, for those in the church, we have to be careful not to prioritize our own sense of privilege. Jesus is not in a transaction of privilege within, with us. He's engaged in something far more deep and far more transformative than we might expect. Jesus in the story is a true practitioner of integrity with his identity. Jesus's first self-spoken words in Luke's gospel are, as we have said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's Luke chapter 4, verse 21. He's clear about his mission and vision. Jesus makes nothing uncertain or confusing about what he has said. When Jesus observes this kind of mounting sense of transactional privilege with the Nazarenes, instead of just walking away from it, he acts upon it. And he acts in an unconventional way. And he begins his response to the Nazarenes by quoting to them two different proverbs. The first proverb is, physician, heal yourself. And the second proverb is, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So rather than to try and adapt his message or to diffuse the sense of growing anger amongst the Nazarenes, he kind of leans into it. He presses to bring the suspicion the Nazarenes had to a head. So when Jesus says, physician, heal yourself, well, that proverb was well-worn in the ancient Near East, not only in Jewish cultures, but in a variety of cultures around uh, Judah and throughout the ancient world, that somehow people are suspicious of a doctor who's sick. Physician, heal yourself. In other words, Jesus 
do something for us that is vastly more significant and important than what you've done for other people. Proverb number two is well-worn within the Jewish community. It's been part of rabbinic teaching about all of the prophets in Israel's history that have been rejected that God has sent to them. You see, Jesus, he not only knows his own identity, but he also knows that of the Nazarenes as well. His goal here is to reveal it. Authenticity, clarity, more on that in a moment, but for now, let's focus on the fact that Jesus, after he quotes these two Proverbs, then he recites two stories about two different prophets in Israel's history. One is Elijah, and the other is Elisha. And how both of these prophets, at certain points in their ministry, went outside of Jewish circles. Uh, the key here in reading these stories of Elijah and Elisha, as Jesus speaks of them, is that these prophets went abroad because of rejection, and they also went abroad, not only because they had been rejected, but because going abroad in and of itself caused rejection to happen. You see, the acting out of privilege of the Nazarenes becomes a twofold issue. They resent Jesus for having done anything in Capernaum first, rather than in their own hometown, and they reject him for not doing more for them than he did for the Caper those in Capernaum. Uh, this is a competition between two cities for the Nazarenes. And so Jesus is rejected because of the ministry in Capernaum and also because he hasn't done more for the Nazarenes than he did for those who were in Capernaum. What becomes clear by the end of the story is this, that who Jesus is and what his mission is are quite clear, and also quite clear are the responses or reactions that others will have to him. And this opens up a key passageway for us here. Integrity involves not just speaking truth, but also defending it in the face of opposition. As I've shared before on this podcast, I read years ago a book by Stephen Carter called Integrity. And Carter, Carter's book on integrity names this relationship between decision and defense that to be a person of integrity not only means to come to the right conclusion for yourself, but also to defend that right conclusion when pressure is applied in an external fashion. Jesus remarkably holds true to his mission and vision with people who have every emotional string to pull in his life. Can you imagine Jesus being in the synagogue with everyone from the town of Nazareth that has been a part of his developmental days, his growing up, his childhood, his teenage years, his early days of learning his father's vocation. These are people that Jesus knew well, and they also knew him. And in the face of that emotional tug, Jesus remains true to his own sense of identity. This kind of committed discipleship is often elusive today. Do we have the same capacity to hold true to our faith in the most wilting and demanding moments of our life. Ultimately, this text brings us to a transparent outcome by the time we get to verse 30 of chapter 4. The end game of this episode is that the Nazarenes seek to kill Jesus. It's actually a lynch mob, and it says that they're filled with rage in the text as they 
heard Jesus speaking. And uh, the grammar there is interesting. It's what's called a present participle. It means as Jesus spoke, their level of rage increased. And as he kept speaking, they got more and more angry until it comes to a head when he finally stopped speaking and they decided they're going to run him out of town and throw him off a cliff. Well, uh, let's be clear about what's going on here. They just don't want to cast him off a cliff till he plummets to his death. Uh, they want to throw him off a cliff um, so that there can be a stoning that takes place. You know, a cliff is kind of hard to find in Nazareth. Nazareth as a city is built on the side of a hill. So the idea here is that they're going to take Jesus and throw him down a hill or down some kind of uh, a small precipice so he's at a lower level than they are. This is a common practice in stoning in which you would get the victim lower than you. So not only did you have the velocity of the stone based on how fast you could throw it, but you also had gravity assisting you as the stone descended upon its victim. It wasn't just a horizontal execution. It was practiced using gravity. The victim is lower than the thrower. So somehow Jesus, after they gang up and try to throw him over a cliff to stone him to death, Jesus just manages to walk through all of the Nazarenes and go on his way. Now, let's just set aside the miraculous nature of the story that Jesus somehow is able to walk through a mob and leave town. But let's just focus for a moment on that Jesus is fully Jesus at the end of this story. He hasn't compromised anything about his identity and who he is. He's transparently fully who he is. And likewise, the Nazarenes are fully the Nazarenes. They have come to the conclusion of Jesus's ministry in their midst and have determined they have not received from him what they felt that they deserved. And so their transparent rage at Jesus and resentment toward him come right to the surface. Luke places this story out of sequence in his gospel for a very important reason. It's out of chronological sequence because Luke is, is helping us understand that the very first public thing Jesus did in his gospel, what we see here is a foreshadowing of the coming rejection of Jesus, that Jesus sent to his own will be rejected by them. From a chronological standpoint, we know that Jesus's ministry in Capernaum comes first. But Luke is trying to make it clear that Jesus is going to bring transparency wherever he goes, that decisions will be made about who he is, and ultimately those decisions will lead to his own death. And here's the final key passageway for us, that Jesus invites us to make a deep and authentic response to his very presence. There's a little Nazarene in all of us. We often engage with God somehow as if we have a right or an entitlement to something. That somehow, some way, there's something lurking within us that God owes us something. This then leads to our vision of a God who exists as a projection of our own needs. When this false God fails to deliver what we want, we often respond like the Nazarenes with rage and a sense of being betrayed. And this is ultimately how Jesus dies. At the heart of our experience of God must be this, this surrender, this capitulation, that it is God who beckons us. So do we trust that what God is doing and saying is true? Because, my friends, God only engages with our transparent self, 
not the projection of ourself or the false self or the, the self we wish we were. God engages with our transparent self. So oftentimes in our lives spiritually, the distance we experience from God, when we might say things that God is far away or aloof, is actually a misstatement that actually we're the ones that have somehow concocted this transaction with God that dupes us into thinking that God exists as a projection of our own needs. Jesus invites us to make a deep and authentic response to his very presence. Not a response built on what we wish, but a response built on who Jesus really is. That's it for this week. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.